Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Haunted House. Hello, and a very dark, windy, stormy, and cold welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Haunted House. My name is Dan Cottrell, and I am the host in the Haunted House. And as a sideline, I'm also editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. In this podcast, three unsuspecting coaches have been invited to enter the haunted house. I will lead each one into a room where they will face a terrifying rugby scenario. Because they tell me they are brave, though perhaps foolhardy, that coach will conquer the fear, finding a coaching solution. On the spot, no preparation and no get out clauses. Sink or swim. The other two coaches will watch on and at the end of the solution will offer alternative views. The original coach can then comment on those solutions before we go off to the next room. So let me introduce you to our intrepid, fearless and slightly nervous coaches. From Scotland, husband to long-suffering Nikki, dad to Maisie 10, Katie 8 and new puppy Maggie, who might yet be making an appearance, currently housemaster at Murchiston Castle School in Edinburgh, level three coach and coach educator who's coached and played in Hong Kong, USA, New Zealand and Scotland. He also coached the Boromir team to a Scottish Cup victory, the creator of Happiness is Egg-Shaped and generally a social media nuisance, Bruce Aitchison. Good evening, Dan. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And off to the Midlands, but hailing from South Wales, head of PE and games at Leicester Grammar School, head coach at Nuneaton RFC, a coach... Uh, with Gloucester Academy and a senior coach developer and level three mentor and now famous for his range of video analysis that we can be found both on Twitter and YouTube, Geraint Davis. Evening, Dan. Thank you. That's the least he's ever said in answer to a question. Uh, <laughs> we've now found out. Uh, finally, from the west of England, though spending most of last year coaching in Canada, former player development officer with England Rugby and talent developer with Ireland Rugby and a former National League head coach with Hinkley Rugby, Phil Llewellyn. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure to have all of you on and looking forward to watching your faces as I give these beautifully crafted scenarios to you. So before we step through the door, Let's find out what non-rugby things scare our guests. So, Bruce, what scares you? It has to be seaweed for me, Dan. Seaweed? Seaweed. It it, it moves in unsuspecting ways. It gets in your feet. You can't see the bottom. It's just, it's it's not nice stuff, seaweed. Right, well, that surprised us. (laughs) Follow follow that, Geraint. <laughs> Mine's far, far more simple. Uh, my biggest fear is boredom, uh, I, but I've not experienced it in in a significant length of time. Uh, but I, uh, it, it gives me enough fear to to avoid it at all costs. Right. Okay. Well, Phil, I was hoping someone was going to say spiders or snakes or ants. So please give us something which is more like that. Uh, yeah, I guess a little bit more traditional. I'm going to say heights. I never thought it was, but a few uh, a few treks in Canada and the states recently have uh, have definitely led to some very kind of sheer drops and, and overlooks. And yeah, it, it probably scared me more than I was expecting it to. So um, that's that's a new one for me. Okay, so seaweed, heights, and boredom, 
Uh, let's see what about these rugby scenarios. There's a few sharp intakes of breath. So I'm now opening the front door. It's very heavy and stiff. A metaphor for my own post-workout sensations, probably. Luckily, the Tower of Power body shape from Phil and Garant helped shove it open. And I can see Bruce scanning heads up. And we enter into the great hall of the haunted house. Over on the left, we can see the library. It's full of half-read coaching books that have been bought on recommendation from other coaches. And on the right, the dining room. It is carb-free, no alcohol zone. I warned you this was going to be a scary place that few like to enter. Anyway, we rattled the chains before we entered the haunted house. And it was Geraint who was to go first. We will now walk down the stairs into the cellar, which was once reputed to be a dungeon and a place of torture and pain and where the Watt bike was invented. So to remind us of how this works, I will set out a scenario and you will have to give me how you'll deal with it. So Garant, how are you feeling? Do you want to leave now or do you want to enter the cellar? Oh, I'm keen to enter. Uh, (laughs) Keen to enter. He's bored already. (laughs) Not at all. Welcome to the dungeon. A parent constantly coaches their under-12s from the sidelines. Their advice is rather old school and not aligned to your thinking or philosophy. Their child is confused and getting upset. One of your colleagues turns up and tells you that this parent played a good standard of rugby and notes that the parent is also wearing his RFU coaching jacket. Your colleague tells you that he's a key selector for the under-18 divisional team and runs a coaching committee that appoints divisional coaches, something that you are aspiring to. What are you going to do? Very interesting one. Uh, I think that's probably something that most coaches can uh, relate to in some way or other, uh, where there's parents of all, all varieties in the sideline. Um, I think uh, my my first inkling is that building relationships with all those in the environment is really important. So discussion with with all parents, particularly when the kids arrive first of all. Um, and I would uh, I would certainly wish to know as much about the kids that I'm coaching um, as soon as possible. Uh, and that includes their parents. They're, they're the ones dropping them off and are often on the sidelines. Um, I think it's, it's pretty important to, to greet them when, when they arrive. Um, and I'd say as the season goes on, you learn as much about them as possible. Um, I think sometimes parents can forget their uh, their influence, uh, particularly those who coach. Um, I think uh, they may be behaving in a way with their um, with their own children that they wouldn't do when they're coaching. So sometimes, just uh, you know, once you build that relationship, just the a conversation as to uh, as to the impact that they might be having um maybe some some questions to the to the child about how how they're feeling maybe separately from the from the parent and maybe maybe help the child in feeding some of that back um i think uh, i think that's, that's probably the the route that route that i would go down um i would i would tend away from anything that would be potentially bringing about conflict regardless of you know this this context has got my own aspirations towards being a divisional coach um if regardless of that i, th- I think it's important that uh, you 
you don't don't actively bring about conflict with uh, with other coaches or with with parents on the sideline in particular. I think that they're they're a part of your part of your your whole culture, and it's important to build a really positive relationship with with all of those. So, uh, yeah, the the direct approach is, is probably probably not the best approach in that, in that kind of that kind of scenario. Would I would suggest? Okay, would you speak to him? Oh, definitely. It's a, uh, but the discussion wouldn't. Uh, it's, it's it's important how you frame the conversations, uh, rather than it being a what could potentially be a, a conflict scenario of uh, you can't. You, you're speaking to your child in a way that's causing upset. I mean, that's probably going to upset any parent. Um, so so I think. Uh, like I say, from the outset, it's from even before you've arrived at your uh, at that point in time. I, I would hope that you've engaged with the parents on the sideline at some point in, in that morning, whether it's a hello or whatever, um, and you've you've gotten used to used to their presence over time. Um, discussing with them after sessions, you know how things are going and you know, shaking their hand uh, as long as uh, uh, as long as the time is right. Um, I think uh, once that relationship has been built. It makes it a lot easier to have those those kind of conversations about the fact that their child's upset and you know, bringing uh, bringing some of the the child's own feedback into it can can be pretty powerful too. What would you say to the child? I'd be certainly interested to uh, to understand how uh, how they feel or if the child is upset, asking them you know what what the causes of their upset is and trying to get a bit of a handle on it. Um, you know, it's 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 a really fine line between. Uh, interfering with parent-child relationships uh, and wanting your own con- your own context to be supportive of that child. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty fine line and it's I think it's incredibly important that the child never gets placed in the middle in that kind of environment. Um, I think that that goes for, I, I would say, without exception, um, the child should never be in the middle. Um, that you you would, if you're going to have a conversation with, with a parent about something that maybe needs addressing it it needs to be away from the child once you've maybe asked the child about their experience and, and what, what's getting to them and what do you hope that you would uh the parent would do in the next time that they came uh, well i suppose it depends how the conversation goes um you would not uh, to it depends uh, <laughs> uh i i would i would hope that if it's been approached as positively as 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 you possibly can, I would hope that that parent would recognise uh, their um, their input. I mean, often celebrating the, the parent's enthusiasm, I think that's a pretty pretty effective way of, of dealing with the scenario. Um, I, you would you want the parent to be supportive. You want the parent to be uh, given uh, applauding and encouraging their child. It's just maybe a little bit of a uh, little bit of control as to how that comes across and, and what that feels like on the field. Okay, uh, great. And let's go over to Bruce. What would you do slightly differently? I think Geraint has has hit it all, and the the desire would be for this situation not to arise because of what you've done in preparation for it. But I think personally, it would it would almost be to kill this guy with or this parent with kindness. <laughs> Um, you know, go up and shake their hand and see how good it is to see them and how you're aware of their experience and would it be okay to catch up with them after the game? Um, you know, and just and then you take on Geraint's points about how to go about the conversation. But someone like that potentially needs their, their ego to be massaged a little bit before you approach the the issue that you're then going to deal with. But 100% agree with Geraint trying not to put the kid in the middle. Uh, Phil? 
Yeah, again, I, I definitely agree with everything that's been said. I'd, I, I would maybe try and pick up on the power of player feedback. Um, and, and as Bruce said, is that may might have been something you've done before, a, a kind of a, a team charter or something along those lines that, that's driven by the voice of the players to say, these are the behaviours we expect of our own parents in our environment. Um, and, and just, you know, if, if that's there, refer to that. If not, spend some time in terms of the kind of an off-field scenario, creating that and actually getting the, the players to voice what they feel um, are, are their concerns and what how they want their environment to be constructed and, and then feed that back or get even get them to feed that back to the parents themselves and, and just ask them to check and challenge their behaviour against it, I think would, would probably be a, another non-confrontational way because if, if there's one parent doing it, you could probably put a lot of money on the fact there's, there's others. So, um, yeah, harnessing the voice of the players, I think, is, is absolutely crucial. Right. Uh, so some really helpful additional stuff there, Geraint. What would you say now that you've had a probably little chance to take breath and think about it? I mean, obviously a very strong answer to begin with. What else might you do now? Um, yeah, I take Phil's point there, but um, a, a player charter. I mean, I've, I've seen that work in lots of environments. I've seen it work in my own kind of junior environments and they're pretty powerful. Um Having a uh, having a real clear focus on what the kids what they actually want what kind of standards they want from their parents I mean that, that's that's pretty eye opening for a lot of parents um, mm. and I've definitely had some uh, very uh, very open and honest conversations with parents when they just kind of they've expressed their shock as to what their children really think in that in that kind of environment so that's a, that's a really nice idea and I, I think that's that's something I would definitely add to my response. Okay, and Bruce, and when you say killing with kindness, what Give us some expressions that uh, really syrup uh, the conversation so it's very sweet for this parent. I think if you go on the front foot and you extend your hand and, you know, you say how good it is to have the support at a game and um, would it be possible to catch up and maybe uh, get an idea of, of their feedback and, you know, approach them looking as if you, you want their inf- their input, which you, you might well do and you might gain from it, but actually you're going in with the ulterior motive to try and get to the bottom of what this interaction is. Yeah, sort of an ambush. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good. Right, excellent. So that was the very first room entered and successfully, I believe, exited. Uh, no fear there should that happen. Right, we're going to go back upstairs and up another flight of stairs. Keep up, Phil. And here we are looking over the battlements. Is that a wolf howling? No, it's Phil. He's just caught up with us. So to Bruce, I told you, I told you there's hours being spent on this script. Every, everyone's a winner. So to Bruce, are you ready to enter this haunted room at the top of the haunted house? I'm just glad I'm following Geraint. He's he's given us the lead, so I'm I'm feeling a bit I'm feeling a bit braver on the back of Geraint. All right, okay. Well, here we go then. Welcome to the room at the top of the tower. Bruce, it's coming up to the last game of the season for the team you coach. The long-standing captain is retiring, and you've helped to arrange the dinner in their honour after the game. Of course, you are the MC and have arranged a famous ex-Scottish international along. This league game will decide whether the team will stay up. Four weeks ago, the captain, who was also the 10, got concussed. He has now declared himself fit and is obviously keen to play. 
in a sense, the previous few weeks have been a blessing because he was not playing very well and his replacement has really dragged the team into a position where they might stay up. With a league limit of four replacements, two of whom must be front row, plus your scrum half has a dodgy hamstring. What will you do? Well, because he's a 10, I'd probably pick myself for this one, I think. <laughs> um, I'm in. I'm in. Chance, chance of glory. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, I think initially it would be to have a conversation with the captain and, you know, four weeks for that kind of absence is is probably long enough as long as he's gone through all the protocols. I'd be in touch with medical staff, whether that be club physio or doctor or some kind of note from the GP to make sure that um, it's not just him declaring himself fit. And then it would be a conversation with him. We would put in some targets for training to see what we think. Um, I would imagine around the captain we would have a bit of a leadership team who would be part of a conversation looking at selection um, in previous experience of picking a squad for a cup final where we came down to a bit of a 50-50 for who was going to sit on the bench as the hooker. I included a senior group of players in that conversation and that was that was pretty enlightening. Um, and we asked we asked each other some some questions that really got us to the got us to the point and with hindsight which is the greatest gift given to man. Um, I actually kind of wish I'd gone with the other guy, but that's 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 as it may be. Um, in this one, I think I'd have to look at how he performs in training. If the current 10 is performing well and is in charge of the jersey, then it looks like they might have to stay in that position. But to give him a shot on the bench, I don't think would be unrealistic if he's a 10 he's obviously full of class um, as all standoffs are so we'd be able to fill in somewhere else I would hope um, scrum half has a dodgy hamstring it looks like there's going to have to be some kind of address to that um, but I don't think that needs to play into the decision of who's going to start at fly half as a captain, he's going to have a role in the preparation of the team, as he, I would hope he has in the four weeks of his absence. So he'll still be up to speed with what's going on. He's possibly been in the changing room listening to how we've gone about things. So I think looking at this, I'm probably going to give him that slot on the bench and keep the 10 who has gone through. And at the end of the game, I would like to hope that he's going to be able to get his paws on the trophy. Okay. Uh, I think a pretty fair answer. Um, Garrett, what would you say? Yeah, I agree with a lot of the points uh, Bruce has raised. Um, I think it's, this scenario is probably a pretty good measure as, uh, of what your culture is like um, and what your what kind of environment you've uh, helped create with along with your group. Um, you, you would hope that your captain is the kind of character you, you've worked with very closely um, that's been involved in a lot of the decision-making through the season, you'd hope that he's acutely aware of what his performance has been like. Um, if his, his, his performance up until the last four games was not great, then I, I would hope that there's been a, uh, some real clarity as to what that performance is and what the improvements required are. Um, and indeed, that when the other player has been in for the last four weeks, that there's 
that everybody's very very aware of what the improvements are if if they if they are improvements um and that the captain is 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 a big part of that um so when it comes down to that final league game I would uh, I would hope that, that decision kind of makes makes itself. So I would I would agree that uh, you, you're going to pick the player that's been on form. It's um, kind of selection protocols. I would I would hope that they they're based upon upon, upon form. Upon boys who are playing really well and the guys who deserve their shirt. Um, while there's a, there's definitely an inkling of somebody who's retiring and maybe has given a great deal to the great deal to the team and. So there'd be, uh, be a, I would hope that discussion would would come from within the group and uh, and the captain would be a big part of that discussion. Phil, I've caught my breath now. Thanks, Dan, for coming to me last. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'll, I'll be devil's advocate and I'll, I'll offer another alternative. I would say um, there's there's no room for sentiment in uh, in the game, um, and I'd probably appeal to his selflessness um, and hope that unlike the haunted house, his his club has a well stocked bar. And actually, he can spend his last Saturday getting on the on the lash with his mates and enjoying the game in a in a slightly different way. So, um, yeah, potentially, I, I would probably go down the road of maybe not picking him, um, but still celebrating him. Your career isn't defined on the last game you play; it's it's going to be defined by everything else he's done. And and that's probably I would hope that the measure of the individual he would recognise that and, and be able to understand that, that that's the the nature of the beast. Bruce, I'm interested in uh, this leadership group idea. Um, in your experience, what is what makes a good leadership group? Uh, thinking numbers and also personalities. I, I don't think there's a rule. I think it depends on the the team that you've got and the characters you've got. You know, the the Finn Russell scenario that we've seen in, up here recently, and a lot has been made of the senior players group. And I've read. Certain professionals have said they think the senior players is is wrong and we shouldn't have that because it creates a hierarchy and it, it's an old boys group and all this kind of thing. And then I've heard others that have said, no, it's absolutely crucial to the culture. I think picking up on Geraint's points from the earlier one about culture, um, the communication that you have with your players is so important and the relationship you have with a captain is is completely different from the one you have with all the other players. But when it comes to picking a team, they're still the player. Um, to take Phil's bit about sentiment, I think that would be one of the things I would probably discuss with the other group, uh, the other members of the group, because I think sentiment would play a part in it and there would be a number of them would probably want him to have his last day in the sunshine. Um, and in the club game, I think there's still a place for that. I the thing I've always found hardest as a club coach when players are turning up in their spare time to play rugby as a hobby is me telling them on a Saturday that they've not got a game or that they're going to sit on the bench or that's that's a difficult thing when someone's given up their time and effort and energy but it's the thing that everyone buys into when they sign up for it but I've always found that the most challenging part and to deny someone who has been a long-standing captain, the chance for that last uh, walk down the path with everybody paying attention and giving them a round of applause, I think I would I would be loath to, to not give them that. So, Geraint, it, I, mean, I mean, first of all, that just uh, that's uh, an experienced coach talking about uh, the key things I think we think in rugby are about relationships. So, given that, where do we draw the line at those sorts of decisions uh, at what at what stage of the 
progression through a player's career where you've got to be maybe a little less sentimental? I mean, the, the context is uh, indeed everything, isn't it? Yeah, I know, but, yes. Uh, <laughs> but in, in this in this situation, I mean, it, this this team, they are potentially going down if they don't win this game. Um, I'd, I, I would hope there's no captain under the sun uh, that would put themselves in a position where they are contributing to their team's downfall because they're not fit, they're not, they're not in shape. There's other boys in better position than them. Um, so that that was th- this particular context that you've uh, that you picked out. I mean, this this is a it's a pretty important game for the club's history. Um, and it, and if it came down to you, you have uh, the players, those four guys who can take the bench. Those guys are in a better position physically uh, to be able to get on and do a job. Then at that point, you know, sent, sentiment I suppose, does go does go to the window. Um, if that person is a genuine option for the bench uh, and you can celebrate their retirement in that way, well, great. Um, not a, unfortunately, playing careers are, are non-linear. They, uh, they 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 change and there's things that that occur that you you don't anticipate. And kind of when you when you when you had that concussion, look, conceivably uh, he'd he'd only been fit for for this last game of the season, um, and he'd have known that when he when he had the knock, and you're probably having that discussion at that point. So um, yeah, sentiment at that point, I suppose you've got to balance that with with the club's history and and the whole club's situation. So uh, just to develop both Bruce's and Garant's point, Phil, um, in terms of having a culture where players understand their roles, how does how does that conversation start or how do you put that together when you're selecting your captain for this season? Um, I think that's a really good question. I think it's about understanding and knowing your players. Um, I think it's it's having a really clearly defined kind of process for, for what you're actually looking for. Is that about ability? Is that about the individuals, the, the standards they set, the, the manner in which they can, you know, man-manage others and, and talk to people and the relationships they have? I, I think you can pick an, a captain for a huge variety of reasons. You know, the, the, the standard one, they might be lead by example um, or they, they might just actually support everybody so everyone else leads by example. So I I don't think there's a, there's a hard and fast rule around any of that. But if you don't know the players, you don't know the team, you're not clear on what you're, where you want that culture to be heading and the direction in which that individual will lead it, um, you can probably make some mistakes around putting putting the wrong people in. And, and then I guess it comes down to the the culture of the club or, or the traditions the club have. I, I've been at clubs where it's a player's vote. You know, the, the coach didn't have any impact or, or any say on other than being able to stand up at the AGM and, and, and kind of just go, this is what we're, you know, this is what we're looking for. This is where we want to take this. Um, I actually had no involvement in the selection of the captain and, and I ended up with a captain who was incredibly difficult to work with. And, and that was a huge learning, learning curve for me. There were some huge challenges. I, I do it a hell of a lot of that differently if I had the opportunity again. Um, but actually sometimes you're you're kind of a victim of circumstance. You don't you don't always get that opportunity to put the who you think is the right individual and, and that's a hugely subjective call. So I definitely think you'd want to be getting lots and lots of inputs from from other players, from interested you know, interested parties in in terms of guys actually who want to do it with all the admin and the, the other stuff that comes with it, the, the other coaches you have, um, experienced people around you. It's a, it's a really, really crucial thing that you certainly don't want to rush. Going back to Bruce, just to finish this one off, uh, we're obviously talking about the captain as the main focus. 
there are so many different traits to a captain and things that we look for. If you were hoping to find an ideal captain, what would you say were the top two or three things that you would hope your captain would have? Yeah, uh, picking up on Phil, understand that that sense of um, clubs have their way of going about it. And having a captain that you've not chosen, I think, is a recipe for disaster, really. And when I took over at Borough Muir, there was a captain in place. And when I arrived, I said that I wanted to wait because I needed to get to know the players. And I think he was a little bit taken aback by it, but we, we spoke about it. But my point to him was we could have arrived at pre-season training and he didn't like me and I didn't rate him and that wouldn't have been the good foundation for a relationship. So I think to pick a captain, you really need to know the group of players and the person that you might think is the best captain might not be the best player to get the best out of his charges. So it's a it's a really difficult one. Um, and I think, as I think Geraint said before, you know, the, the context is everything. So I think the, the first point would be you have to get to know the players and you have to get some clear lines of communication. And from that, you pick someone, firstly, that you trust, and secondly, that can role model the behaviours that you want to see from the entire group. Okay, and I think those are really strong takeaways. Uh, There has to be trust between you two. And as Phil indicated from his experience, uh, it's very difficult when uh, the captain's foisted upon you. And then uh, the clear lines of communication uh, after that. Uh, We are now moving to the final room. And good news, Phil, we're going down the laundry chute. So follow me. So we're back in the hall again and we're going into the study. It's dim and musty. Sorry, I meant it's Phil. Are you ready to go into the haunted study, Phil? Yep, yep, let's go for it. Okay. Welcome to the study. Phil, you've been invited to take an under-15 girls session for one of your friends. She's a bit vague about the details, so you arrive early at the venue. In the next half an hour, over 40 girls arrive, and they are definitely all under-15, because a lot of them look under 13 and probably some of them are under 11. But there are only parents in civilian clothes and no sign of your friend. Eventually, a breathless parent comes up to you and says that your friend has been trying to contact you to say she and her co-coach will be delayed by an hour. And do you mind looking after the girls? You count at least 40. And in your boot, you have seven size five balls and a stack of cones. What are you going to do? Uh, nice. Yeah, that, that's, I would guess, a pretty common occurrence in lots of ways. Um, firstly, phenomenal that they've, they've got that many numbers, so they're clearly doing something something right. Um, my mind would jump straight to let's, let's get some games on the go. Um, let's probably have some sort of discussion with them around some of their favourite games, some of the things they enjoy doing the most, maybe some of the things they haven't done in a while um, or or actually have, have you know not been allowed to do in training. Um, maybe teams of four or five, bit of a round robin, let's pick three or four different things we want to do. That might be some skills challenge games, you know, pass to hit the crossbar and, and those types of things um, or, or just, you know, small-sided touch games um, and, and get them running around, get them enjoying it, get them mixing up the teams uh, and just having a, yeah, a, a lot of fun 
Um, I, I don't think I'd be spending too much time worrying about you know team preparation or, or organizational stuff i think just just getting them to to recognize some of the decisions definitely some of the, the communication elements within that how are they problem solving um and and are they you know are they enjoying themselves to be able to come back next week what's going to be your opening line then because they don't know you um, I'd, I'd probably just explain the situation, just give them a little bit of context and, and just say, you know, I was invited in. I've not had any information. Uh, other coaches aren't coming. Um, you know, you're with me and, and this this is kind of what I'm thinking. Are you on board with that? What are your thoughts? What would you like to do? Um, and, and just probably have some sort of open dialogue that, that sets the scene and, and then takes us in the, the direction of travel. OK. And what uh, what would you say is your sort of go to session ideas which uh, you think I can I can do this because it's it makes life a little bit easier as I'm sorting my my thoughts out um j- just mini games uh, you know we this is probably one of the last sessions I did before the the virus kind of curtailed all rugby in Canada but we we were just doing almost exactly the same teams of four or five um you know maybe six aside and and just getting you're right team A is going to play B at this game and then you're going to go and play somebody else at another game and, and just keep your points tally as you go along so we're, we're just making it competitive um there's a variety of things that we'd probably look to be challenging around some some passing skills some decision making some evasion um just just kind of basic stuff um and i think any any kind of fun act- activity that games they want to play or, or just those ones off the top of my head that's certainly the the one the sevens guys use where you, you've got to keep the defender away from the cones is, is quite a lot of fun just to um, to get people started and energised and, and doing a lot of talking. So just explain that one. The... Um, okay, so let's say you had uh, seven players. Um, six would be defenders. One would be an attacker. You'd lay out seven cones. So there's always going to be an empty cone. And then you're basically asking the players to to kind of defend the empty cone or the empty space. And that attacker has got to try and evade all of those um, defenders to get onto the empty cone before they do. So he's the first to touch it with their foot. Um, if somebody stood kind of on or next to a cone as a defender, then that cone is occupied. Um, but because there's one more cone than, than attackers, uh, than defenders, sorry, then, uh, then there's always going to be a space somewhere. So they, they've got to, defenders have got to keep moving to... to kind of manage the space and keep it as far away from the uh, the attacker as they can i'm just going to um uh, put my hand into the uh, embers of the fire um and uh, bring up the fact that uh, they are some under 15 some under 13 and some under 11 but i'm going to throw that one over to garand first to maybe comment on how how one might deal with the fact that they are there's a bit of a range of age groups uh, yeah, first of all, pretty cool scenario. Um, I think uh, I would be pretty excited to be in that, that kind of environment. Um, you wouldn't like, be bored? Definitely wouldn't be bored. Definitely wouldn't be bored. Uh, yeah, pretty exciting environment to be in. Um, and I think uh, with that type of thing, when you when you reach uh, almost like a crisis point, I think it's really important that the players are as protected from that as possible. Um, so getting into activity showing your excitement for for the environment uh, rather than maybe reeling off all the all the reasons why this might not go so well um, just crack on and, and have a bit, a bit of fun with it i love phil's idea of uh, of asking them what they what they think and what, what they what they like doing a uh, pretty good idea um so just with the, with the age groups um obviously there's there's a there's an element of uh, crossover of age group particularly the the, you know, the 11s and 15s is a, is a big old jump 
um, some games you'll play, I'm sure, will be would be pretty would be fine to to mix age groups in. Um, but dependent on the numbers that you've got per age group, you're you're, you're probably looking to particularly within touch games, whether you know, that age split is, is is quite large. You, you're probably breaking down breaking them down in their small sided games into into their own age groups quite possibly. Um, but it's also it's also pretty cool mixing them in, and there's a, there's a lot of benefit in having some uh, some raw modelling from older players and and getting them to nurture some of the younger players coming through as well. So there's a, there's probably pros and cons to both, but and probably a mix of both within the session as well. Um, maybe the more contested games, slightly more um, dynamic, um, kind of end-to-end type game, you, you might well split the age groups. But the, the kind of game that Phil's talking about, that's a that's a pretty cool game to to have all these groups mixed together. Okay, Bruce, what do you think? Yeah, I love Geraint's uh, answer there about getting excited about it. This is the kind of thing where you, you got to put on the performance. You know, coaches have to wear lots of hats, but this one is absolutely, you've got to perform and be enthusiastic. Um, but it's an exciting thing to have 40, 40 kids arrive ready to go I would deploy the parents. I would I would chuck them the stack of cones and explain to them what I need and why I need their support. Um, so I'd get them to do that, and then being a PE teacher who deals with uh, you know a range of kids from having taught nursery all the way up to to you know eighteen year olds, this is where all those silly games come in, where you get them into a circle of five kids you give them a number number one steps out and they have to try and tag number four who are all linking arms so they're in a little circle and you've got one chasing around trying to tag them and you know they all of a sudden five minutes have gone but they're warmed up and ready for action and by that stage you've probably got a little bit of information from two or three of them you've identified who the leaders are you've looked at maybe if there is you know as Geraint's saying if the age difference is going to be an issue that's where you make your call on, right, I'm going to have an under-15 pitch and an under-13 pitch and an under-11 pitch. But I think I'd probably be setting them all the same game and I'd start with a bit of culture and talk to them about hoik ball um, and the town of hoik and the reason that hoik ball started in hoik is because it needs to be very simple for the people in hoik. Um, <laughs> so we'd get a bit of hoik ball going, I'd be able to make a bit of an assessment on their... Yeah, that's. I'm going to get absolutely murdered for that from from Hoyk. I used to work in Hoyk as well. I'm going to get absolutely murdered. Yeah, for that. well, you used um, to. That's that. Forget the haunted house. I'll know. I'll not be able to go back through the thirty signs of Hoyk again. Um, but uh, you know, from that, you'd make an assessment on their skills, on their movement patterns, on on how they're reacting to this situation that they've been thrown, which is probably something they're not used to. Um, and then make a decision on what happens to the game next. Right, we're going to pass backwards now. What does that mean? We need to do. We need to run forwards with the ball. We need to try and create space by drawing. You know, and we you can start to feed in your coaching points, and then we can start to add in other conditions to try and get things out of it. And as you know, as Phil said right at the very beginning, make it a bit of a round robin. Right, stop. Five minutes. Stop. You go there. You go there. You go there. Ready. Let's go. You've got the ball. Let's get going. And you know, just get a real buzz about it. And I think you'd find that that hour would fly past. Your mate would arrive, and you would completely ignore them because they've stitched you up uh, <laughs> right royally with this situation. And the kids would leave saying, "Can he come back again next week?" And we don't want you anymore. Uh, I think that's that's the way to go. Make it so enjoyable and and so full of action that you know the 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 time's gone and and everybody's had a great old time. 
Well, Phil, obviously we now love you very much for this session. What, uh, given what uh, Garen and Bruce have said, what would you add to that or uh, build on? Yeah, I, I think the point around just double checking. I'm not sure whether they are all under 15. I'm not sure whether the scenario said they are, but they look younger or whether they are actually younger. So, yeah, definitely a point of clarity around that and, and making sure you know who is in that session yeah. um, before you go and you know do any any kind of activity with, with those groups. But I think Geraint's point was massive around actually mixing up our teams for training if it's appropriate training is is a pretty cool experience for them it will challenge players in different ways it will it will give them opportunities to improve social connections and and ultimately if we were considering rugby as a as a lifelong journey um and we want them involved later on at, at kind of you know under 18 under 19 kind of coach level or into seniors that they're more than likely going to end up in that social group anyway so that the sooner we can start to um break down some of those potential social barriers or cliques or, or whatever that might look like within a club environment i think is really positive so so joint sessions just from a, a social perspective are, are pretty massive even before you get into the benefits from a, an actual kind of on-field rugby perspective Okay, good. I, I mean, loving loving the answers. I mean, one of the things which is coming across to me immediately is is enthusiasm and really embracing the situation and enjoying enjoy, enjoying the challenge. And if you're enjoying it, then it probably means that the others are enjoying it as well. So uh, now we've been through all the rooms. We're back out into the hall. Um, let's just sort of pick back pick back over our uh, own scenarios or your own scenarios and just maybe give us a. A highlight which you would um, have as a takeaway. So, Garant, what would um, what would you stick with or uh, adjust from your encounter with the RFU coaching guru? Um, just about the I would set in the set in the scene really early on in the you know, right at, right at the start of your coaching engagement at the mid, beginning of the season. How important it is to to set the set the set the scene for your environment and how welcoming it is. Uh, and I'll, I'll definitely pick up on uh, what, what Phil raised about the the player charter um, and how how important that that can be. Um, you don't know when when it'll be useful to you, but it it tends to be useful at some point in the season. So getting the players to put down their expectations. Of, the, of their own parents it's a, it's a pretty cool thing to draw on okay uh bruce what were your reflections on how we deal with the captain situation i think it would be to to make sure that the communication had been clear and the the feedback loop that one of the things i, I jotted down here as as Geraint was talking was about the performance before the concussion and that would be crucial to the the feedback that he'd been getting on those performances so that he was aware that if and when any selection was made, you know, as Phil said, no, we're, we're going to leave him out. Well, he would know why long before declaring himself fit um, when the concussion happened or we're picking you, but you need to understand that these were the things we asked you to work on and you need to be aware that these are the things we, we need to see from you. So it would be making sure that the communication and the feedback loop had, had been really crystal clear before anything happened, just as part of your your coaching process. Okay, and finally, Phil, the same to you. What would you do the same or slightly differently with the girls' team training I, evening? 
just pick up on the point that Bruce made, I think, actually about the parental input. You know, lots of lots of sessions will have lots of parents or, or guardians or whoever that might be there observing, actually, are there ways we can get them involved? So they're, they're developing their understanding of the environment and the game potentially and of the players and, and acting as scorers or, or you know, ball fetchers or, or whatever it might be, but but just doing a bit more with them uh, ahead of just just letting them kind of stand at the side and, and have no real engagement so i appreciate there's a time and a place for them they, they they might enjoy that as their social time with other other parents but i definitely think there's there's a good idea to uh, to speak to them about getting involved in some capacity as well okay thank you and thank you to garrett bruce and phil for putting themselves in the spotlight we are told to try and get ourselves uncomfortable to learn and i expect with some time to reflect we all might do things at least a little differently next time what I'd love you to do is to go to at Rugby Coach Week Twitter or Rugby Coach Weekly Facebook to paste a uh, post or even paste your own thoughts on uh, these scenarios. I'm sure that you will agree that all three of these guys were very impressive under pressure. I could see their faces. Well, I could see two of their faces and uh, they didn't blink an eyelid at any stage uh, throughout that, uh, that those situations. And I can now tell you that they've all safely left the Rugby Coach Weekly Haunted House. So thank you again, Garrett. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, thank you again, Bruce. Thanks, Dan, and thanks, boys. Great, great to catch up with you. And last and certainly not least, and uh, not puffing anymore, thank you very much, Phil. Thanks, Dan. Joke, jokes have been awesome. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to coming again. And then, uh, great to chat with the guys. It's been, been superb. Uh, well, that's all I want to know, whether the jokes are awesome, because that, uh, that was what it's all about. 10 out so, of 10. So, anyway, uh, goodbye from the Rugby Coach Weekly Haunted House, and we hope to see you all again very soon. <laughs>